0: Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. In his new memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, writer-director Ed Zwick recounts the many twists and turns of his long career. That includes the positively harrowing time he had with a young Matthew Broderick during the making of the Civil War film, Glory.
1: I have forgiven him long ago, but I felt that if I was going to write an authentic book, that I was obliged to tell the whole truth about myself as well, at times, in less favorable lights, And this was one of those moments. The irony, of course, is he then went on and did wonderful work in the movie, and the movie has endured.
0: Zwick shares stories and lessons from his years in the industry, but first we banter. Stick around, it's The Business from KCRW. I am joined by my colleague in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So, Disney. the <laughs> Disney has come out with a lot of announcements forward-looking things that are going well at our company in their latest earnings call. I'm going to just try and list some of them. and Maybe I'm going to forget. And this is in no particular order. They announced a surprise Moana movie coming in November. It's a sequel. Somehow they kept that below the radar, even though in my experience, the animation community is the most gossipy in the business. But Okay, there's a Moana sequel, which I'm sure they saw space for it. So, you know, because it's been slow with movies coming into the pipeline. They are going to be the exclusive place to watch the Taylor Swift concert movie, which was a record breaker. You remember that she didn't distribute it through a regular deal with the movie company, but Disney Plus will have that exclusively. I would say the combination of Taylor Swift and Disney will make the right wing's head explode. So that'll be interesting to watch. Disney is going to plunge into games. I think they've tried this before, but Bob Iger said he has concluded that you have to be in that space considering how much time young people spend there. Uh, So they will put $1.5 billion into Epic Games, and then they will uh, try to grow that. And overall, the results for the company were pretty good. And all of this is sharp elbows to these uh, dissident shareholders, Nelson Peltz, backed by Ike Perlmutter and another group that, let's not even bother, Because Bob Iger did not bother during this uh, his most recent earnings call to, to address them directly. He did on CNBC and very dismissively. Disney is teaming up with Warner Brothers Discovery and Fox. And there's going to be this app that you can you can subscribe to this streamer and see year-round sports, all kinds of sports. This is a big deal. And a lot of people are skeptical. Some people think this is uh, transformative. You are the sports guy in this. Uh, I'm, I'm like a sports dilettante. You are the sports guy. So go ahead, Matt.
2: Well, it is potentially a very big deal, both positively and negatively. This is an app that's going to be owned one-third, one-third, one-third by these three big players. They are going to put all of their sports assets into this service. It will have about 50% of the available sports in this country, probably about 70 80% of the sports that people care about, all of the national games for NBA, MLB, NHL, hockey. It'll have Monday Night Football and the Sunday Afternoon Fox NFL game. This is a very big deal because for these cord nevers, for people that have not signed up for a cable service, this is pretty much all the sports you can handle in one service. We will yes. see. The big question is the price.
0: Well, yes, but let me just say before you go to the price, yeah, these are all going to be available wherever they were available before. So if you were watching something on uh, one of the Warner Brothers Discovery cable channels, you can still do that. But this is a way to have it all and not have to have a cable subscription, for example.
2: Which is huge and this doesn't prevent Disney from continuing to develop their own ESPN over the top channel, which is still going. Iger says it will probably debut in the fall of 2025. But The big gamble they are taking is they are betting that this will be a viable option for people who do not have cable, who want sports, but that it won't additionally cannibalize the existing cable bundle subscribers. Lachlan Murdoch on their earnings this week, he said, we don't believe this will materially change the number of people who subscribe to Fox through the the cable bundle, and it will add on this whole other group of people who currently cannot watch the Fox Sports because there is no Fox streaming service. So if that works, great for Fox. But there is a chance here, and I think it's a material chance, that this is only going to exacerbate the downfall of the cable bundle, and it's going to cause these companies to lose even more of the profits that they throw off, and potentially it'll be made up, this streaming service? Potentially not.
0: I have to say, I don't believe that Lachlan Murdoch doesn't believe (laughs) that it will erode the cable subscriptions. But uh, yes, some people do believe that in a way, maybe they're tacitly acknowledging the end is near. Cable subscriptions have been declining like very fast. And maybe this is just their way of kind of saying we are facing reality. We're going through the Kubler-Ross stages and this is our counterplay.
2: Well, and for Fox, it's a big coup, I think, because... They have had this problem that I mentioned, that they don't have a streaming service. They aren't able to put those Fox NFL games anywhere. And they've lucked out because the ratings for football have been good the past couple of years. Nielsen has started measuring out-of-home audience for broadcasts, which really benefits sports and in particular the NFL. But that's not going to last forever. And these ratings on NFL games on Fox are going to start going down as the court is cut by more people. And unlike the other partners of the NFL, Fox doesn't have anywhere to put these viewers. They're just going to go away. So now they're able to put these NFL games into a streaming service that will then potentially grow their audience. Same with World Series. Fox has World Series games and and other stuff, too. They will now be able to say, watch on Fox or watch on Sports Plus or All In Sports or whatever they end up calling it.
0: Yeah, I mean, price is going to be very important in this, obviously, but I have to think there are a lot of people that would be willing to pay. I don't know. What about you? We have a perfect specimen right here. What are you willing to pay?
2: I'd probably pay between 40 and 50 bucks okay. if I cut the cord otherwise. The problem is it doesn't cover potentially. We don't know yet. The regional sports networks and the local sports, they have to adhere to all the blackouts. So if you you watch the NBA national game and it happens to be the Lakers, they will not show it. Because the Lakers have their local games on local channels. Now, with exceptions, sometimes they do show it. But they have to adhere to that. And they also have to figure out the regional sports network game. Because that is a hugely challenged business. And potentially this could work. Potentially this could not work for it.
0: I will just note that I believe that Paramount and Comcast were not invited to play in this particular thing with uh, the other three. It's also kind of a thing to fend off the Amazon and Apple possible incursions, these very rich companies that can pay a very big price, which is what sports cost.
2: Yeah, this is a direct result of the escalating cost of sports rights, because you're like, why are they doing this? Sports is a a pretty good business still for these companies. But the rights fees are just going up and up and up. And the NBA negotiations are going on right now. And they're going to get a huge increase, which is only going to challenge them. This is why Bob Iger was looking for a financial or league partner for ESPN, because he knows that it's going to get more and more challenged as the revenue coming in goes down and the cost goes up. So by putting these rights all in a bundle and potentially giving a subscriber a year-round offering. So even if you are just an NBA or an NFL fan, there's something for you to stick around for all year. They're essentially recreating the bundle, but for the sports audience.
0: Yes. One thing I can say with certainty is this is going to be talked about, analyzed, discussed. Possibly there will be litigation. Who knows? But we have definitely heard the first, but not the last of this. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Multi-hyphenate Ed Zwick first gained recognition with 30-something, the 1980s ABC hit series he created with longtime collaborator Marshall Herskowitz. His credits as a film director include such big studio movies as Glory, Courage Under Fire and The Last Samurai. In his memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, Zwick offers deeply personal stories as well as practical career advice. And he throws in a few hair-raising tales of encounters with some big stars and their big egos and insecurities. Zwick says that if he was going to write an authentic book, he was obliged to tell the whole truth about himself and the business. How did you find it
1: writing a book? You've
0: written a lot of things.
1: Yeah, I, um... It didn't even begin to be a book. It was just a set of notes I would write to myself. And in fact, as I began to write in more narrative, when I would save the file, I would call the file B-K so as to not defy the literary gods. And I have to give myself the pressure of actually writing a book. I'm
0: not writing a B-K. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Okay. But um, it was confrontive and it was scary and it proved to be increasingly rewarding. I had this really remarkable experience with a couple of friends who are serious readers who read the first, what I thought was the draft. And they were very supportive and yet then said to me, you know, we're going to give you advice that you might have given to a lot of actors, which is (laughs) we don't see enough of you in the book. Mm. And that led me down toward something deeper. And I think it enhanced the nature of the book and the experience of it.
0: Mm. I'm going to ask you to do a couple of readings because you have these great stories in the book. Okay. And for me, it was actually kind of a, a flashback in some ways because Ovitz, Michael Ovitz, the erstwhile super agent, the yes. head of CAA and co-founder, he keeps popping up. <laughs>
1: <with> <laughs> He's these, like a bad penny.
0: Like uh, representing some Julia Roberts or this one uh-huh, or that
1: one. Uh-huh.
0: And it made me think about how things are today. I mean, there's no one who has that position no, of uh, no, unbelievable, unfettered, seemingly. I mean, who strikes terror in the hearts of men and women and just had so much pull. And, you know, at one point, I think Jess Zagansky he's running like Tristar or whatever. He says to I'm giving in to Ovitz. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're pushing back. But that was the final word.
1: That's right. I even remember his astonishment or even confession that the head of a studio, in fact, had a lot less power compared to some of these uber agents at the time.
0: You tell stories about multiple movies in this book, and you also put in lots of advice and pointers of Mm -hmm. how to deal with this crazy business. I may be reading it wrong, but I feel like Glory I know you love all your children equally, (laughs) but somehow I felt the pride that you take in glory come through so strongly.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's given a closer examination moment by moment than some of the other movies. And I think more than that, I think it was that moment in which I felt myself in service of something. I felt that, that, that I was confronting something larger than me, and it was such a big swing and a a risk and a learning experience and then has had this afterlife, has 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 had this long tail where it's taken on a role in the sort of the redress of history about African Americans in the Civil War. Right. And this is
0: about the African American unit yeah. in the Civil War. Yeah. Just and to be and clear. it's been
1: taught in schools. It's part of Black History Month. And to have done something even at an early moment took on, you know, greater import. And it still does.
0: Yeah, forgive me. I was on a flight recently, and, and there it was. Yeah, exactly. And I hadn't seen it in a long time, and it holds up for
1: well. Me. You know, and also it began a relationship with Denzel Washington. We went on That's to make what more I was movies about together. To say. Yes, um, mm-hmm. Steve Rosenblum, my editor, who then was nominated, went and got that, and James Horner and I then did other things together. And so it was the beginning of something, and it was the beginning of a level of ambition and a scale that I had never worked at.
0: So, it was kind of eerie because I was reading about how your casting person dragged you to Juilliard Mm -hmm. to see this, I guess he was about to be a graduating senior, who was, she felt was essential to cast or a great strong possibility. And it was Andre Brouwer. And I read that like literally the day that Andre Brower died. And it was so jolting. And then when I watched the film again, and you see that performance.
1: Well, I mean, you know, these are always terrible ironies because in writing the book, I've now reached out and gotten in touch with a lot of these actors I hadn't spoken to before and was certainly looking forward to talking to Andre as well. Hmm. But certain times this happens, and it happened when I first met Claire Danes. It happened when I first met Matt Damon. But, you know, someone like Andre, what he knew already couldn't be taught. I mean, yes, he'd studied at Juilliard and he'd done all the homework.
0: And he didn't know movies at all. No, he, I no, think he would tell him to hit a mark and he's <laughs> like, what's a, mark? <laughs> what's a mark?
1: And yet six hours later, he's going toe to toe with Morgan Freeman mm-hmm. or with Denzel and holding his own. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I mean, I, I worked with a producer, a man named Freddie Fields, a legendary scoundrel and a, quite an interesting figure. And I remember what he felt like when he saw the first day's dailies, and, and you know, he had this expression, which was a great expression. He went, the kid carries his own lights.
0: Oh, and, that is a great expression.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, very Freddie.
0: Uh, however, yes. <laughs> this was all very magical. And you talk in the book about, you know, at first you're like, is Denzel even getting this? And mm-hmm. then he just goes there and you're like, okay, I'm going to get out of the way and mm-hmm. let him do this. But Matthew Broderick was cast as the young
1: Robert Gould name, Robert Gould
0: Shaw, the young lieutenant or whatever. He was a colonel, colonel. Colonel. Yeah. Colonel who is going to put together this black group of soldiers. (laughs) And you say here, and you're talking about how well things are going and how incredible your cast is. And then you you say, as the saying goes, you never hear the bullet that hits you. (laughs) I I had not heard that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was told me by uh, one of my ADs who had been in Vietnam
0: Okay, Uh, so you get a call from Bo Goldman, who was a genius screenwriter Mm -hmm. already, and he says that Matthew Roderick had sent him the script and asked him to rewrite it, and he wanted to know if that was okay with you, and and you're like, what? (laughs) So he's like, okay, I figured as much, don't worry about it. But then you get a call from Jeff (laughs) Sagansky. Well, why not just read this a little bit here?
1: He says that Matthew says he needs his mother to come down here and work with you on the script. His mother. Yes, she wants to meet you about the script. Apparently, she's some kind of writer. His mother. Yeah, Ovitz insists we fly her to Savannah every weekend on a private jet.
0: And there you have Ovitz, yeah.
1: That's not in our budget, I say to him, although I was probably shrieking. We'll cover it, he says. Well, it was hard not to point out that he was able to find the money for this folly while we were being pressured to find budget cuts everywhere. But apparently she's been sick, he went on. And Ovitz says she won't fly commercial and she'll be there on Saturday. Anyway, um, he says, I'm really sorry, man. The translation being that he's giving in to Ovitz.
0: Okay, so now we have Patricia Broderick... Appearing. Appearing.
1: Patsy, as she was called, was a brilliant woman, a painter and a playwright of some success, but never with the recognition she felt was her due. So we met, Matthew, Patsy, and I, in my office for hours on end going through the script, page by page. Although I'm sure she was capable of warmth and charm, I was never treated to that side of her. From the moment we met, she was contemptuous, demeaning, and volatile, and as Matthew sat in opaque silence. I was forced to defend in excruciating detail my rationale for every line in every scene. Patsy knew an enormous amount about the transcendentalists and the abolitionists, but not so much about screenwriting.
0: Okay, so Patsy thinks she knows everything and thinks she's a writer. <laughs> I'm just going to have you read this a little bit more.
1: Patsy was relentless in her criticism. And I fought her at every turn, doing my best to ignore her profanity and insults. One of her choicer comments was to describe my writing as limp as a would p- <laughs> read Beowulf in college. In it, Grendel's mother is described as a monstrous hell bride brooding on her wrongs and ferocious in defense of her child, a swamp thing from hell. Well, like Grendel's mother, Patsy clearly believed her son to be an imminent danger and had to come to defend him with no holds barred. At times, she would go too far, and I would respond in kind. Yet if I got visibly angry, which I regrettably did at times, she would burst into tears or say she had to go lie down. I didn't know how to react. Let me add one thing here, which I think is important. Matthew was 24.
0: Right, very young.
1: And he was in an extraordinary moment where he had these great things happen to him. He'd had some personal issues in his life as well. And I think he was surrounded by people, as young actors always are, who whisper in their ear about who they should be and who should work with them and who they should work with. And I think they looked at me at that moment as a young TV guy. I'd just done 30-something. And who the f*** did I think I was? doing this big epic about something that his mother knew a great deal about and cared about. I have compassion for him and understand him and have forgiven him long ago, but I felt that if I was going to write an authentic book, that I was obliged to tell the whole truth about myself as well at times, you know, in in less favorable lights, And this was um, one of those moments. The irony, of course, is he then went on and did wonderful work in the movie, and the movie has endured.
0: Coming up after the break, Edswick talks about almost directing Shakespeare in Love, a dream derailed first by Julia Roberts and then by Harvey Weinstein. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more— Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. In 1991, Ed Zwick was hired to direct a romantic comedy about a young William Shakespeare struggling to make it in show business. The costumes were ready, sets were being built, and megastar Julia Roberts was set to play Shakespeare's love interest. As he flew to London with his leading lady, Zwick had every reason to believe that he'd be shooting the film in no time. You got involved with a script that ultimately became Shakespeare in Love. Mm -hmm. And... You were like green light. You were going full speed ahead. Mm-hmm. I think in London, right? So we we, we, had, sets. we had built
1: the sets at Pinewood,
0: and the female lead was one Julia Roberts. Correct. Who was very young, also. I will note very young. And you describe this situation where you end up flying to London with Julia Roberts, mm-hmm. and you say that in those days the British Airways mm-hmm. flight to London was, you say, very intimate. <laughs> when laid flat, the effect was perilously close to that of a double bed. <laughs> so you're lying there with Julia Roberts and she just starts telling you this confessional monologue to the point where you're thinking, is she trying to do Shakespeare like they on the plane, <laughs> I think? And she talked about being in love with love and she had talked about co-stars who she had been involved with, Keith Russell, Lynn Dylan McDermott, Liam Neeson, And you're thinking, first of all, why doesn't she fall in love with her directors? But second of all, what's going on? So she's doing this monologue, and give me that little bit.
1: Okay. (laughs) And then Julia got to the punchline. I've decided who should play Shakespeare, she says. (laughs) Well, I cut in and I start to list all the brilliant actors I had read already who had scheduled to meet her in the coming days. But Julia was on a roll. There's really only one actor who can do it, she said. She said. I closed my eyes in dread (laughs) and asked who, why, Daniel, of course.
0: And that would be Daniel Day-Lewis. It would be. And the story goes from there that she basically ices everybody else Mm -hmm. that would be potentially Mm -hmm. playing Shakespeare. And you end up with this array of great actors, you know, that she's rejected. And I guess the long and short of it is she vanishes from the hotel where you're saying. Well,
1: she's turned down by Daniel.
0: Oh, yes. And, I should say that. Well, Daniel you know, and, was involved, and with, was another involved with
1: another film. He was involved with another film, and he is quite very politely demurs. And she Although, is,
0: she, being Hollywood, you know, you say yes when you mean no. So she comes in, she says, I've got him. It's so exciting. And you're thinking, yeah, there's no chance this yeah. is going to happen. And,
1: and she's crushed. You know, it has been my experience at times that when you're younger you set your mind on a thing, and when that thing doesn't happen, that the whole thing loses its luster. And it's been particularly true a couple of times with actors, and that that particular enthusiasm is the thing that that animates them, particularly when you're at the very top of the world, as Julia was at that moment, and felt that she needed that thing that she needed. The bad behavior was just to then sort of F.O., and that really brought it all crashing down. Uh Tom Pollock, who was a very good guy and he had financed. Yep, the late me. Tom Pollock, yep, he was the head late of Tom Universal Pollock.
0: at the time, and he was uh, somebody yeah. who helped me a lot learning how to Hollywood works. And
1: helped me and Tom for a million dollars to rewrite the script. I had convinced him to do that and it Which was, was worth a big
0: ask, worth right? Every and penny. It, but it had the dream just to have him do
1: it. Yep. But he then chickened mm-hmm. out. When Julia left he just
0: He being Tom in this context. Tom
1: yeah. chickened out. And This is when we were talking before about these personalities because it was many years in the wilderness that then went on when I tried to get the movie made. And it wasn't until Harvey Weinstein read it that he then stepped up and said he wanted to do it. Now, we're talking about somebody who is arguably as monstrous as anybody a personality has been in Hollywood, and not just for the depredations of his sexual behavior, but for his ways in business as well. Yes. Except that like the Borgias, or the Medici, he had taste, and he was actually a patron of that taste.
0: It was actually sort of inexplicable, matching his persona as he presented and that taste.
1: Exactly right, and it was he who stepped up and did it. And my point being, like the Harry Cones and like the Louis Mayers, it was the idea of these owner managers being willing to take these big swings. And and you know, yes, it went on and it made a lot of money and it won the Oscar. But at the time, the idea of a comedy about young William Shakespeare in the sort of image of a Hollywood striver was not a sure thing. No. So, yeah. And then I had to endure Harvey Weinstein, which was an adventure unto itself.
0: Well, I think you wanted to still be involved with this thing. (laughs) And and he
1: tried to steal it. Um, I sued him. It was another... Learning experience it's along really, the way.
0: I mean, there are certain people in this community that to be yelled at by them is, oh, is very special. Oh, I uh, no, no.
1: He, he woke me up several times in the middle of the night threatening my children. <laughs> I'm going to kill your children. You're hated in this town and you'll never work again. Mm. Or words to that effect.
0: Yeah, I I can remember standing with my phone, arm's length, just Uh waiting for the noise to stop and then get back in and say, is it my turn now? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, what do you think having been through this business when it was still a really great business? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You had a huge network hit, you had movies and there were no streamers. I mean, I think a lot of people would want that
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's funny. I mean, I guess in retrospect, the book feels transitional. I mean, I did partake of this extraordinary moment and I've played out the string over these last number of years and I've tried to find a way to remain you know relevant and supple but it is very different it's different in so many ways and and I don't even know where to begin I think there's a time in the book that I list the movies that I had loved when I was really starting out and it's maybe 10 or 15 movies, one more extraordinary than the next, one more, you know, of, of Watershed.
0: Throw out two names, so people...
1: Oh, it, well, maybe, I mean, as a young, I mean, seeing Apocalypse Now right. and, you know, The Tin Drum. And, I mean, there were so many movies, uh, I mean, literally on and on. Kramer versus Kramer was the same year. It was the extraordinary moment. And I don't think that there is that possibility for a young filmmaker to have those sort of things in front of them to reach toward there are great movies, but they feel a little bit like they're tithes, that the studio will, while doing two or three programmers or superheroes or sequels, will then give one slot to one filmmaker a year. And so you at the end of year, you may have four or five of those, but you don't have 20. Mm-hmm. And that's already a very big difference to a filmmaker.
0: Yeah. We've had guests talking about the lack of originality, and mm-hmm. and it seems to be catching up in some cases with certain genres. Or certain, well, that's yeah. the
1: interesting part about the sudden or the eventual dissatisfaction, it seems, with Marvel and some of the superhero franchises. And it's also there, I think, in the streamers, because there's a kind of shape that the streamers have assumed which is almost this kind of Dickensian serial drama telling, which always leads to a cliffhanger. And and that's designed to make you feel anxious so as to then go to the next. next. Mm -hmm. And that's a commercial decision as much as it's an artistic decision. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think what a lot of the best TV was, was it had even within its shape – Sometimes closure and catharsis and those things of drama that were so important, or it would reinvent itself every year when you think of something like The Wire, mm-hmm. which was not bound by any kind of, you know, sense of order but rather, it was genuinely creative. And there certainly are those things now. God knows. I'm not saying there aren't those, but they're they they're rare. Mm-hmm.
0: Some of the sources I've known for many years, there's just this refrain like, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> I think it was difficult then, of course. It's, it's always
1: been difficult. But by the way, it's also always been fun because we've all done this, I think, more out of love than anything else. That's how it began. And you try to hold on to that your whole life. So to do it, even now, is fun. But the number of obstacles and the kind of obstacles, one in particular, this idea that when you try to talk to a studio, you're never talking to a single person. You're always talking to a team. Right. Which feels like the legacy of Silicon Valley, a a kind of creation of consensus. And
0: uh, And um, marketing is definitely in that meeting. (laughs) It is
1: in that meeting. And so you end up, you know, I think it's very hard to get across something more eccentric than when there were these Almost like the owner-managers, there were times in which the heads of these studios, indeed, were making a single person making a decision or the networks. We couldn't have done 30-something had Brandon Stoddard not been there, sitting there. We couldn't have done Special Bulletin had Brandon Tartikoff not been there. It's just not that way anymore.
0: Yeah. So, here we are, having talked about the nature of the industry now. Mm-hmm. And belts are being tightened and mm-hmm. product is being productized. Yep. <laughs> what do you think? Does it swing back? Or are we
1: doomed? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, disruption has proven to be a very interesting thing in a lot of industries. And it feels to some degree like we're due for one. I mean, I'd like to think that somewhere there's a group of young filmmakers like Steppenwolf was in Chicago as a theater company, that gifted actors and writers together will, you know, create product that people will somehow want to see, um, and that that will find a way to sort of bring down the monoliths, because the monoliths aren't so monolithic anymore. On the other hand, it's sort of the inverse of the old Marxian edict about controlling the means of production because you can control the means of production now. You can afford the camera and the, you can cut it at home and you can use a you know sound mixer and it's all there. It's about the platforms. It's about distribution and how do you get the eyes on it? Because what we all saw and have seen continually now, when there was so much money available and these people all jumped in and created so much product.
0: The streaming
1: The streaming race, glut. Arms race, yeah. and, and, and everything didn't seem to be individuated. If you look at those interfaces, you would just scan from one to the other to the other and they all took on a kind of equivalence and nothing seemed to be separated. And that was part of it. what is wrong, I think, is nothing seemed to have, and and even some of the things I mean, that were made. I mean, when you
0: see HBO as a tile. Yeah. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right, yeah. I mean, clearly we don't know where it's going, with technology, AI, all of these things, kind of unnerving, yep. <laughs> I think, for yep. a lot of people, yep. to put it mildly. I have always said, you know, people want stories and they want to be told stories. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if there comes a point where, you know, they're, they really, what well, Quibi sort of tried to stab at a few years ago and yeah, failed.
1: you've noticed anytime they try to do something interactive. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because the nature of listening to stories comes from, I believe, from the, the earliest childhood. I think it is essentially passive and regressive. I think that you want to surrender that part of your brain and not engage in that way. You want to let your imagination run free, which isn't a kind of left-brain efficacy. It's more of a, an acceptance of taking something in. And I think that's going to be proven again and again. And however pervasive virtual reality becomes, I don't think it's going to substitute. It may enhance certain stories if they're told in a way. But I don't think the participation in them is going to be the key.
0: I remember some executive saying, you can be in Paris at a sidewalk cafe. And I'm like, if I'm not eating the food, exactly. <laughs> why am I there? Yeah. Ed Zwick is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker. His memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, is now available. Thank you for coming in.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that's the business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week
1: on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.